0: an oven, y'all, well, coming back, see if there's anything good going on we Might as Touch. New scathing letter could
1: spell due for Clarence Thomas, oh, one hour ago, referral. Yeah. Justice Clarence Thomas and the numerous purported ethical violations reported by ProPublica is in the limelight again because a big step forward has been taken into the investigation of these actions. An official letter written by Senator Sheldon and Representative Hank Johnson has officially been sent to the Judicial Conference. This is the conference that oversees the justices in this country, and if the justices decide, they can request that the Attorney General of the United States open a criminal and civil investigation and nice. To Justice Clarence Thomas.
0: Oh, yeah. The letter
1: says specifically, nice. we write to request that the Judicial Conference exercise its authority, pursuant to 5 U- United States Code, Section 13106, Section B, to refer Associate Justice of the Supreme Court, Clarence Thomas, to the U.S. Attorney General. There is reasonable cause yeah. to believe that Justice Thomas willfully fails to file information required to be reported under the Ethics and Government Act of nice. 1978. Nice. This letter is specifically referring to the failure of Justice Thomas, failure to disclose the sale of the interest in three of his properties in Georgia, to the billionaire, Harlan Crow, in 2014. Now, Justice Thomas did report his ownership of those interests over the years, but he failed to report the sale. They go on to say, the requirements of five USC section 1,304, section A-5 are plain and unambiguous. That provision states that a reporting official must provide a brief description, the date and category of value of any purchase, sale, or exchange during the preceding calendar year, which exceeds $1,000 in real property. Other than property used <coughs> solely as a personal residence of the reporting individual or the individual's spouse. The transaction value exceeded 1,000 and the exception was clearly un- inapplicable. So, I mean, from the reading of that code, it does seem that Justice Thomas has violated by not um, reporting on the sale. We never mind, um, the letter also talks about his receipt of the gift and how that could also be an ethics violation. And specifically, it says, last week, ProPublica reported that Justice Thomas accepted luxury trips from Crow Virtually every year for more than two decades, including private jet flights, international cruises on a super yacht, and regular stays at pro's private resorts, without disclosing almost any of them. I mean, the reason why this letter is so significant is because of how rarely um, justices are even ever investigated, and I, the, the, it's probably unlikely that this conference would actually request the Attorney General to investigate because of its history of not being very good at investigating themselves. But this letter is now part of the public Uh document that lays out very clearly and put on notice the alleged ethical violations that he did do. And I think it's really important here because one, you know, if Justice Thomas is trying to say that he didn't uh, realize that not disclosing it was a violation. He is, you know, one of the nine justices are the ultimate deciders of the law. His job is literally to interpret the law. For him to say he could not interpret the law correctly is uh, really far-fetched and also kind of alarming that somebody that is sole job is to interpret the law, could not interpret something that is in such plain language a violation to not um, disclose that. So that... In itself, being a Supreme Court justice, the problem here is that Chief Justice Roberts is in charge. He's the head of this conference, and we know that the Supreme Court has, is very bad at investigating themselves. You know, when the leak happened over the Dodd opinion, they brought in and did an investigation, and you know the employees and were asked to be given interviews under penalty of perjury but not the nine justices. They were not required to talk to the investigators under penalty of perjury. I mean, talk about being above the law. Your employees are subject to penalty of perjury, but not the nine justices. And then surprise, surprise, they couldn't figure out what happened. So, you know, clearly they have, the Supreme Court has shown that they're not very good at regulating themselves. And so if this letter fails to do what it needs to do, what kind of options are there? the senate judiciary committee could subpoena clarence justice thomas to come and sit for an interview and give uh, more details again under perjury penalty of perjury here to really talk about his failure to disclose items the problem with this is that the vote requires a majority and right now because senator feinstein has been sick and is not able to vote on the Judiciary Committee, the Democrats do not have that majority. And this just is increasing the call for Senator Feinstein to resign because the Republicans are not willing to step in and put a temporary replacement on the committee. This is not only causing an issue with them not being able to subpoena Clarence Thomas, but it's also causing an issue in that they're not able to put forward um, Biden's nominees for the judicial, the federal judiciary in general at all levels. And so this is going to become an increasing issue that, you know, and the reason why I think partly the governor is reluctant to nominate replacement is because there's quite a few candidates who are trying to, you know, replace her in an election. And if they nominate one of them, he's maybe putting his thumb on the scale. But at this point, you know, don't let's not sit in the seat too long. Let's not do something like Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg who was amazing but stayed in it too long and so much of her work was undone because President Trump was able to nominate her replacement. Senator Feinstein, let's not do that again step aside so that there can be a replacement who could put forward the nominees, who can subpoena Clarence Thomas. We needed to get to the bottom of this. Supreme Court justices cannot be above the law. They literally are the ones, the ultimate deciders of the law. They have to be able to follow ethical rules and cannot say, oh, we just didn't understand the law. Um, we need to hold them accountable. and But we can only do that with a majority of Democrats on the Judiciary Committee.
2: Our blue wall stopped the red waves and election deniers got denied election.
1: Justice Clarence Thomas and the numerous purported ethical violations, Justice Clarence Thomas and the numerous purported ethical violations reported by ProPublica is in the limelight again because a big... Ford has been taken into the investigation of these actions. An official letter written by Senator Sheldon and Representative Hank Johnson has officially been sent to the Judicial Conference. This is the conference that oversees the justices in this country. And if the justices decide, they can request that the Attorney General of the United States open a criminal and civil investigation into Justice Clarence Thomas. The letter says specifically.
3: Referring Justice Clarence Thomas. Justice Thomas for his violations.
1: Right to request that the Judicial Conference exercise judicial its conference. authority pursuant to 5 U. United States Code Section 13106, Section B, to refer Associate Justice of the Supreme Court Clarence Thomas to the U.S. Attorney General. There is reasonable cause to believe that Justice Thomas willfully failed to file information required to be reported under the Ethics and Government Act of 1978. This letter is specifically referring to the failure of Justice Thomas failure to disclose the sale of the interest in three of his properties in Georgia to the billionaire Harlan Crow in 2014. Now, Justice Cl- Thomas did report his ownership of those interests over the years, but he failed to report the sale. They go on to say the requirements of 5 USC Section 1304, Section A, 5 are plain and unambiguous. That provision states that a reporting official must provide a brief description, the date, and category of value of any purchase sale or exchange during the preceding calendar year, which exceeds $1,000 in real property, other than property used solely as a personal residence of the reporting individual or the individual spouse. The transaction value exceeded 1,000 and the exception was clearly inapplicable." So, I mean, from the reading of that code, it does seem that Justice Thomas has violated by not um, reporting on the sale. I mean, never mind, um, the letter also talks about his receipt of the gifts and how that could also be an ethics violation. And specifically, it says last week, ProPublica reported that Justice Thomas accepted luxury trips from Crow virtually every year for more than two decades. Including private jet flights, international cruises on a super yacht, and regular stays at Crow's private resorts without disclosing almost any of them. I mean, the reason why this letter is so significant... That
0: reporting on these gifts was unnecessary. Who were these colleagues? These gifts from corporate lobbyists were unnecessary. Hospitality. Called it hospitality.
1: It's because of how rarely um, justices are even ever investigated. And I, the, the, it's probably unlikely that this conference would actually request the Attorney General to investigate because of its history of not being very good at investigating themselves. But this letter is now part of the public document. It lays out very clearly and put on notice the alleged ethical violations that he did do. And I think it's really important here because one, you know, if Justice Thomas is trying to say that he didn't uh, realize that not disclosing it was a violation, he is, you know, one of the nine justices are the ultimate deciders of the law. His job is literally to interpret the law. For him to say he could not interpret the law correctly is uh, really far-fetched. And also kind of alarming Just that qualifying. somebody that is sole job is to interpret the law, could not interpret something that is in such plain language, a violation to not um, disclose that. So that in itself being a Supreme Court justice, the problem here is that chief justice.
0: I said, disqualifying if Justice Thomas is cheating on his taxes and tagged the IRS.
4: Roberts
1: is in charge. He's the head of this conference. And we know that the Supreme Court is very bad at investigating himself. You know, when the leak happened over the Dodd opinion, they brought in and did an investigation. And, you know, the employees and were asked to be given interviews under penalty of perjury, but not the nine justices. They were not required to talk to the investigators under penalty of perjury. I mean, talk about being above the law. Your employees are subject to penalty of perjury, but not the nine justices. And then surprise, surprise, they couldn't figure out what happened. So, you know, clearly they have, the Supreme Court has shown that they're not very good at regulating themselves. And so if. This letter fails to do what it needs to do. What kind of options are there? The Senate Judiciary Committee could subpoena. Clarence, Justice Thomas, to come and sit for an interview and give uh, more details, again under penalty of perjury here, to really talk about his failure to disclose items. The problem with this is that the vote requires a majority, and right now, because Senator Feinstein has been sick and is not able to vote on the Judiciary Committee, The Democrats do not have that majority. And this just is increasing the call for Senator Feinstein to resign because the Republicans are not willing to step in and put a temporary replacement on the committee. This is not only causing an issue with them not being able to subpoena Clarence Thomas, but it's also causing an issue in that they're not able to put forward um, Biden's nominees for the judicial the federal judiciary in general at all levels and so this is going to become an increasing issue that you know and the reason why i think partly the governor is reluctant to nominate replacement is because there's quite a few candidates who are trying to you know replace her in an election and if they nominate one of them he's maybe putting his thumb on the scale but at this point you know don't let's not sit in the seat too long Let's not do something like Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was amazing, but stayed in it too long, and so much of her work was undone because President Trump was able to nominate her replacement. Senator Feinstein, let's not do that again. Step aside so that there can be a replacement who could put forward the nominees, who can subpoena Clarence Thomas. We need to get to the bottom of this. Supreme Court justices cannot be above the law. They literally are the ones, the ultimate deciders of the law. They have to be able to follow ethical rules and cannot say, oh, we just didn't understand the law. Um, we need to hold them accountable. Okay. and But we can only do that with a majority leaky, leaky, leaky. of Democrats on the Judiciary Committee.
2: Our blue wall stopped the red wave and election deniers got denied election. That's why we're celebrating with the new Democracy Prevails team. We've got lots of work to do, but we should all be... Pra-
0: do do do, 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 do. Touch, intelligent expert speaks out. Let's see here. Uh, yeah, that's fucking great. <coughs> intelligent expert speaks out. Former top CIA agent warns of danger of Trump and modern GOP on Democracy. Uh, one day ago, Midas Touch.
5: Oh, How's man. Doing? Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to On Democracy with F.P. Wellman. I am F.P. Wellman, the guy you've been looking for. I do I mean, not looking for. Really exciting week. We are now on the Midas Touch Network. If you're discover, discovering us for the first time, I talk fast. I know you're going to c- complain about that, but it is what it is. Matt, the producer's back there. He tries to slow me down ever works we got hand signals doesn't work but nonetheless thank you for being here we got a great guest on today we're going to talk about some really cool stuff we've got a great group of uh of broadcast we've joined now on the minus touch network i've known the myself brothers for about three years in this fight for our democracy i'm so humbled to be a part of the network and and, and, and tell our story to a larger audience so thank you for being here let's just get on with the show Welcome again. As mentioned previously, I am Fred Wellman. This is On Democracy with FP Wellman. You know, this is a show. If you're new to it, we, we talk to really smart, cool people. By the state of our democracy uh, the threats to our democracy the things going on today and 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 i always try to find guests who have got a unique perspective on the issues we're facing at the minute uh in the in the recent times and the political actions around those so i hope you learn something every time we talk this week there's no question we're going to i've got a great guest i managed to score a, a guy who knows the intelligence community. if you remember last week We talked to Dennis Aftergut, a former federal prosecutor from San Francisco. We spent a great discussion about the state of our judiciary. Uh, He was actually optimistic. He gave us the pearl of wisdom from the Stockdale paradox about you know, you should face the brutal facts. But have Unwavering Faith, uh, and that's the new one that we'll be using a lot here on the show. <laughs> uh, poor Matt's going to hear it a lot. So I'm really excited to have somebody who, uh, the perfect timing always, as we look at the leaks of these classified information that we just heard about and some other issues going on in our country. So I'm thrilled to have John Cipher. Uh, he's a former Central Intelligence Agency officer, non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center, and the co-founder of Spycraft Entertainment, It's a production firm providing content and talent in entertainment history, foreign policy, intelligence, NAT security, all of these things, I'm an expert. And two, four, 2014, John retired from a 28-year career at the Central, Agency, Central Intelligence Agency's National Clandestine Service. So easy to say. At the time of his retirement, he was a member of the CIA's Senior Intelligence Service, a leadership team that guides CIA activities globally. He is the recipient of the Distinguished Career Intelligence Medal. John, welcome to the show. I don't think I've seen you. I think you and I hung out on Zoom when we were with the Lincoln Project as senior advisors during the campaign a couple of times. So it's been a couple, three years. It's great to see you. Great to have you on the show,
2: man. Welcome to On Democracy, man. <laughs> Nice to be here. You got a fancier studio, so
5: right. Good for you. I don't know. I you like got it. the books, bro. It looks looks badass too. So I, you gotta have. I gotta bring more swag in from the army. I, people always come, I got more Star Wars stuff than army stuff, but you know, whatever. I've been out for a while.
2: <laughs> yeah, we move on. We change. <laughs> it's, and it's, things. it's interesting you talk about the Stockdale paradox. We in the agency we used to have a thing called a leadership seminar where we'd have to take people off line for a couple of weeks and teach, and we would often talk about that book, Good to Great. Yep. And and in there, that talks about the Stockdale paradox. And yep. Stockdale, who was a you know, prisoner of war in, in Vietnam, and, and that's it's it's an important lesson, an important way to think about things is, you know, you've got to deal with the brutal facts, you face that first, and then you figure out where to move from then. Right, and, and it was such fool, a... we tend to fool ourselves a lot these days, and I know when I follow you on Twitter and, and other people, it's frustrating to see how much sort of silliness is there where people right. aren't dealing with what's in front of their faces.
5: This is where we are, right, and, and, and there's a, people want to live in a bubble and not face these facts, and and, uh, and and the thing that gets you in trouble, I did this as a spokesman in Iraq, right, as, you know, I, I would, every now and then we get a, a positive news story, oh, we did this great thing, and I'd say, yeah, but the facts aren't right, and people are like, yeah, but it's a good news story, I said, yeah, but when it comes out that the facts aren't right, we're still going to get blamed, <laughs> right, <laughs> you know, so, you know, we've got to face the brutal facts, it wasn't, that wasn't what happened, and so uh, it was a great framework, you know, I think I told you in the prep that uh, we start the show off, uh, for those who are new to it too, as a um, you know, we get such interesting guests who've had a unique journey at this moment, and, and you are are one of those. You were a CIA agent. I, I love when I was reading your bio, you and I, I think, entered service just about the same time. I think you in 86, I got commissioned mm-hmm. in the Army in 87, so we're about the same age. We're both falling apart, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> you know? <Really? laughs> we're both full of fake joints at this point, which is fine. It's fine. a new hip. Congratulations. <laughs> I love it. I got the knees. I love my knees, so here we are. One,
2: one fake knee, I'll get the other one
5: soon enough. <laughs> well, you know, we're more machine than me man at this point, two old fuckers here we are you know and i was laughing because i was looking at your bio on twitter and you, you just mentioned that glenn greenwald just called you the left's favorite cia dude <laughs> you know so obviously your bio doesn't doesn't necessarily point to where you are today i mean what was the journey that left left you from the cia to now that place where you're with the atlantic council you're a, you're an outspoken voice um, from a progressive viewpoint on national security issues what got you to this moment john
2: <laughs> like so many journeys, it wasn't one I intended or, right. you know, sort of backed, backed into, you know, I had no intention of having any sort of public role. Yeah. Um, I left the agency in 2014. I started doing some consulting work for Stan McChrystal's group that does, works with companies and yep. that type of thing. And it wasn't really until sort of, you know, Trump and Trumpism, we started to run and speak, and especially yep. dealing with the Russia stuff, because i had spent time, I served in Moscow. I worked on you know, worldwide Russia programs against the, the KGB types and all of that type of thing on counterintelligence and counterespionage and, and a variety of things. And so when I saw some of the things that were out there and it was happening, you know, especially early on when they, you know, there was all this talk about the steel dossier yeah. and what does it mean and what, is, what might the Russians trying to be doing? Are they interfering in our elections? Are they not? Is it you know, that I, I felt like, you know, I had something Offer because i have been working on Russian television issues for almost 30 years. And yeah. so you know, I started to write some, and I would write some op-eds for the Times and Post and Atlantic and other places, and, and speak a little bit on TV. I don't really like it. And, <laughs> I, and, and I'll, I will do it now, like in the beginning of the of the uh, invasion in Ukraine, you know, to help try to provide context or bring a historical picture. I'll, I'll talk, but I'm not really hawking anything, or it doesn't really benefit me to be in... <laughs> TV that much, and so I, I sort of have been staying away late, so so yeah, I sort of ended up with some sort of weird, you know, public role. Yeah. In the agency, I never had any social media whatsoever, I wasn't right. on anything, it just wasn't part of our work, I lived overseas for most of my career, and then a couple of years ago, about again around the time of trouble, I got onto Twitter and these other kind of things, and it just sort of becomes, you know, <laughs> yeah. addicted, and sort of talking and people come after you and Glenn Greenwald and a lot of sort of the pro-Russia people yeah. and the pro-Trump people come after you and then you know sometimes as you comment on things some of the people from the fringe on the left also can be also pretty nasty and come after you too and so I don't want to shy away from that it's not my main role in life I'm happily retired from the federal government I have a company trying to make you know spy movies and yeah. TV shows and, and I spend my time doing that type of thing but uh now, I will comment on things if I feel I have a value to add. And, and like you, I think one of the sort of animating pieces has been, you know, politicians throughout time memorium have often, you know, said silly things to push themselves or to, to to go against their opponents. One of the things that's happened in our country lately is they've disparaged our institutions as part of that. Right. And having worked, you know, in the national security space, in the Central Intelligence Agency, with the State Department, with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, with the Department of Defense, all these type of things, to see politicians essentially weakening them and destroying them and smearing them for the public, um, I think that's very dangerous. You know, there's very dedicated and smart public servants working day in and day out to keep Americans safe and to follow the rule of law and to follow regulations and do things, you know, ethically and take their job very seriously with with oversight and trying to support you know, American citizens, to see that treated as if, you know, it's all part of a partisan game and, and it's all free for all, I think that's very dangerous for us. Yep. And so I, I know that that's important to you too. And that's something that sort of has animated me to have some sort of
5: and that's what we talk about a lot here. You know, Last week, Dennis Africa put it very well. It says the, 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 the mission of Trumpism is like acid eroding our institutions. That, that, that Trumpism in itself and the MAGA movement, and now there's no way to deny the entire Republican Party, as you see the antics of the House GOP, is truly designed in many ways to undermine institutions. And we've seen it in the judiciary. We've seen it in every aspect. We talked last week quite a bit about the Hatch Act being a complete... Fucking shit show now that they don't. Nobody cares about, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and so here we are. And as you and I were t- getting ready, as I was getting ready for the show, I looking at that, that's the exact issue. When we look at there's so many examples right now of attacks on the intelligence community, and and, and I was talking about the extremism, and I'll, I'll cut to that in a second. Is you know the intelligence has been very much politicized, right? We we see that. I mean, I thought we saw a lot for nine eleven. You and I are both serving di- during the nine eleven period. I, I know it must have been a real shit show for your side and the CIA side, but. From my side, we, we saw the politicization, that there wasn't enough intelligence you know, shared, or etc., et But now we're seeing truly um, Republicans, especially, attacking our intelligence community, um, uh, using it against us, um, manipulating the results. Uh, a good example, I know you're, I'm sure you're familiar with. A few years ago, didn't the FBI came up with a? DHS came up with a report about the increasing extremism from the right, which outcry from the right killed and now we're seeing more and more of this right which takes us to a touch let's go right to that the leaks which is why we're you know okay so this kid jack texera i guess his name i'm i'm so bad with names um Jack as Don, Ju- Tishir, Don Jr., Jack to show who is the first ah, baseman to the Yankees there you man. go, thank you so much because I'm a hot mess Matt just shakes his head back here. <laughs> yeah you're so unprepared um but you know Jack as Don jr calls him, you know this young man he's twenty one year old national Guardsman uh is working in 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 Massachusetts and decides to start sneaking out classified documents and sharing with his buddies online um i think I think just for our guests, you know, our viewers who may, may not be familiar with our world, be it military and intelligence, I did spend a short stint as an intelligence officer in the Apache Battalion back in the day. I think the big question a lot of people ask, maybe you can help frame it for us, is how did a 21-year-old National Guardsman have access to top-secret information like this? Print it out, stuff it in his pocket, and take it home, and, not, and go undetected. But let's start at the very beginning. How the hell does a 21-year-old National Guardsman have access to this crap?
2: Yeah, it, it, you know, there's there's a lot of context that goes behind that. I mean, we have a massive national security apparatus. Yeah. Uh, professionalized, as you know, there's you know, diplomats and intelligence officers and military officers around the world doing their job day in and day out. Yeah. And that is buttressed by both overt and secret information. And so the intelligence community's job is to collect information that administration or warfighters or whoever need that information to do their job. And so if we can't get that information. Overtly, we try to use technical means, spies, what have you, to either steal or collect that information and use it. And so, you know, the, the, the CIA and the Intelligence community collects information. That information is in the form of intelligence reports. Some are more sensitive than others and classified in different areas. And then they're sent to the places that need them, whether our diplomats overseas, ambassadors, our negotiators, our warfighters, generals, admirals, what have you. Now the military is interesting. They sort of they they run things in a different way, and so for senior military officials, you know, they, you know they what they what they often do is they have people who work for them who pull together the intelligence that they need, so they can get sort of a daily brief or or a piece of paper that sort of over right. a variety of you know, overseas things of what's happening in these different places. Um, and it, it totally makes sense. You can imagine after 9-11, like you said, there's a lot of people who talked about, hey, maybe we weren't sharing enough intelligence, maybe the people who had this sensitive stuff you know, didn't weren't giving it to the right people. And in some sense, it's sort of gone far the other direction, in the sense that you know, people who don't necessarily need to see information on what's happening in Israel or Egypt or China... Are getting this review every day with all of this stuff on it, and so in the military, there's something that's very different. And this is me being a little snarky from my period working in the intelligence <laughs> community. What? The military mil- senior military officers they want junior people to process that stuff right. and, and and get it to them in powerpoints or in official reports and that love type of We do love and our PowerPoint. The military does for warfighting purposes, you know, hire people out of high school and train them to to be military officers and airmen and all these other kind of things. And then they often use those people to sort of put together sort of briefings and things for them. So in this case, this young airman who worked for the Air Force, part of his job was to put together these intelligence reports to share with the J-2, which is the part of the military that, that does intelligence. Right. Now, we in the intelligence community and in the Diplomatic Union State Department, if you have, if you're working on, say, Russia and Ukraine issues, you then have, you need information that, that relates to those issues. Now, yeah. what's hard for us in the intelligence community to say is this information that got leaked was, you know, piece of paper with intelligence on Ukraine, order of battle, on what's happening in Russia, on efforts by the U.S. government to listen in on the United Nations General Secretary, on what the South Koreans, we're up to, what was happening in Israel, Israeli politics and riots, and was, what was the Egyptian doing in terms of supporting Russia. So there was this wide variety of things. So from the intelligence community perspective, you're like, you know, we in the intelligence community and the diplomatic community don't hire high school kids to put together that stuff for us. Yeah. We essentially get the information we need for our thing. The military has gone too far. Yes. Senior military officers need a variety of intelligence to do their job. They don't necessarily have to have to, to rely on these, especially especially young people, yeah. putting together such a wide variety right. of things so that if, in fact, it's stolen or leaked, it has sort of this global impact. Yeah,
5: and, I, and we saw it. I, I, I spent the latter part of my career in the military as a staff officer for senior generals, um, pretty much all I did for the last. Eight years after after <laughs> one, after Iraq going yeah, that's all i did. And and you're right, it it, it is, uh, and there and there's this hunger for information from some of them that is well beyond our scope. But you're right. It's not just them. That's the, they're not the problem. It's the people who touch all that information and get it to them. And that's where this young man fell. in. now, what's interesting about this story we, as it developed was, and then afterwards is, and this young man clearly has very right-wing beliefs. He is, uh, you know, I love that the first story said he was a gun enthusiast. This is how they described it: gun enthusiast. Oh, okay. That totally fucking clarifies that. Gun <laughs> enthusiast. Like uh, <laughs> an entire fucking, he was sharing racist memes. He was he was pro-Russia. But the the some of the media first went with gun enthusiast. Like, well, fuck that. The gun enthusiast, the he did it. No, maybe he's a fucking traitor. No, I can, you know. But anyway, uh, but what's really shocking, and, and it got, because of the leak, it got even a little less notice, was a story came out last week, too, where a former Navy non commissioned officer, uh, woman, uh, a 37-year-old woman, a 37 year old woman, is the face behind a pro Putin, pro Russia social media network. So now we've got two examples. Of service members or former service members, recent, recent former service members who are acting on behalf in many ways of Russia and then the pro-Rut, you know, as you as a career intelligence officer and as a national security professional, I mean, does this give you pause and should we be extremely concerned? And as the DOD, there's a lot of questions here, so I'm going to give you 19 questions. <laughs> <laughs> you know, good thing I know what I'm doing. Uh, but let's start with the top. Holy shit, should we be worried that we've got folks who are, uh, you know, horny for Russia coming out of the ranks of the military right now?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we have a, you know, we have, a, again, a national security apparatus that's just massive. Right. And for the most part, it's professional and serious and, and, and does its, jo- its job to protect American citizens. But if you have, you know, a process that over a million people have access to classified information, you're going to have some bad actors. You know, right. just like in business, there's going to be a certain amount of people who steal money. And, in, you know, whatever else you work in, there's always going to be some. I mean, you know, I think our national security and our public service do a better job of sort of policing and trying to make sure of that and you know, filling ethics reports and oversight and this type of thing, but it sometimes happened. We've seen Bradley Manning steal seventy five thousand documents when he was working as a in, in the army in, in yep. Iraq and we saw Snowden steal two million or more yep. classified documents from the NSA when he was working there, you know, which should have been protected in a much better way. And and we've had spies inside our own midst, Oliver James and the CIA and Robert Hansen and the FBI. Deal things, so it's a difficult process. It's probably more difficult in some ways for the military because the military does recruit across a much wider swath of the of the U.S. population. Um, it hires younger people, but just by its very nature, you know, if you're an army officer, like you you're going to have people who work for you, some who are been around a long time and have learned some have gone to college, some who haven't, some who are out of high school, some are. and so they, the military has a much bigger issue of managing this population of people, some who they get into trouble and they smash cars and they go to jail. Like there's just it's it's a it's a huge organization right. Which is very, very hard to manage and their credit they do generally an excellent job. But you're gonna have a lot if you if you're hiring kids right out of high school from all over country, you're going to, and put them into difficult situations, you're going to have a very difficult time sometimes, and we're going to see some bad actors spring from that. So this woman you're talking about, she she was a naval official somewhere out in the West Coast, and we probably would never have heard of her, but she was running this Telegram channel, and Telegram is another one of these social media sort of channels that's very popular in Russia. Yeah. Um, claiming to be a Russian woman, Donbass, Debushka means young girl in Russian, and Donbass is that part of eastern Ukraine where the war is going on. Yep. And she was spouting very pro-Russian things, you know, pushing this you know, horrible beheading in, uh, yeah. video of, of Ukrainians being killed. And, th- and probably she would still be doing it today, except for the fact that she ended up getting some of these classified documents herself, Yep. And actually, either she or the Russians or somebody were were fiddling with him and changing some of the information on him to make it look like this classified U.S. government uh, report was saying something that was more pro-Russian or more anti-Ukrainian than it in fact did. Um, and as people picked up on that, they, they looked into it and it turned out this Russian woman was no Russian woman at all. She was a... <laughs> former naval person working out of seattle or whatever the west coast and yeah. and uh you know it was just a you know a, a bad actor and that's part of the problem today is if you're if you have bad intentions you can just find, find a community online that most of us won't yeah. see and spread that information so it's it's a hard problem I, i'll give you that and you know because of our first amendment rights and, and our our civil rights here in the, in the united states it isn't like we have a means, or the FBI or anybody is sort of tracking these yeah. things. They can't online. That's just not how our system works. And so, we're sort of vulnerable, uniquely vulnerable to this stuff. And foreign bad actors, the Chinese and Russians and Ukrainians and others, have figured this out and they understand that they can. It's a weakness of ours, and they can exploit, push, amplify, support, push false information, disinformation, use these people for their own benefit. And it ends up just, you know, hurting our political, you know, dialogue,
5: right? And do you think, <clears throat> I mean, more should be done? I mean, do you, do you think that the DOD is doing enough, or our, our intelligence community is doing enough to do that? As like you said, there is a First Amendment right, but what, for example, another example this week that is horrifying to me is this former soldier, is the sergeant in Texas who was just convicted of murdering the Black Lives Matter protester. And he had been tweeting and, and posting on social media horribly racist things long before he grabbed a gun and drove an Uber into the middle of an attack, a, a, a protest in 2020. And no one apparently caught that, that he was still a sergeant in good standing. It feels like in many ways that, again, circling back to something we said earlier about the politics, that because of the pressure from... Uh, and I will say it, the Republicans, the Republicans are pushing so much pressure on the military, anytime they talk about wokeness, right, it, it it almost feels like there's a fear within the military and the intelligence community to suss out these right-wing bad actors, and and, and we're paying a price for it now, because now it's gone beyond just having some racist thoughts to conspire, conspiring with our enemies, right? I mean, um, is, is it enough being done, or it, it, do you think it's, that's the case? Do you think the politics of this is pressuring them to not do more, and and, and how do we fight that?
2: That's a a hard question, I, and I'm not sure that politics is making it worse, but it's certainly not making it better, and, okay. it, and it probably is. You know, when I went to work for the Central Intelligence Agency, I, it was made it clear that I signed over some basic rights. Like, right. I let it be known that the U.S. government could track every everything I did online for work, everything I had to put in, all, all money I spent. I thought ethics things. I had to submit to polygraphs. I had to submit to background investigations. I had to report contacts with people. Um, Essentially, I did give up some basic rights, because I had the privilege of having very sensitive information that protected American citizens and could be damaging to America if it wasn't handled right. And so I do think perhaps the military can find a way. if, If you sign up to be, to work for the United States military, in a certain sense, you you should be signing up to, to be to be monitored. You know, as a, as a citizen, like you and I who are out now, the FBI should have some reasonable cause, or obviously, or anything to, to monitor our communications or what have you. We, they should have some criminal predicate for that. If you're inside the, the military, they should be able to, you know, track what you're doing online. They should be able to know what you're up to. They should be able to see if you're, you know, during the day, you're on other chat things talking about sort of, I don't know, you know, these right-wing or left-wing yeah. sort of activities that are, that are are beyond the pale. And, yeah. um, you know, I think we often, we, we're Americans, so we often look for sort of easy technical solutions. And so we'll probably go out and find some Beltway Bandit and hire some software and say, oh, that'll, <laughs> it'll tell us if someone is, if people are operating we'll this and way and that way. But, right <laughs> but nothing really, nothing really substitutes for just, good leadership for people, right. paying attention to the people under their command, knowing them, understanding them, listening to them, uh, and you know, making sure what they're up to. And it probably has been made harder by COVID when you know, people are often away from each other and not around each other as, as much Yeah. get up to things.
5: Well, I do have fear. I mean, we know that so many of, uh, and of course you're not military, you're intelligence community, but on the military side, there's so many veterans that participated in January 6th, for example, a huge number of veterans, a huge number of people from our national security world um, that participated in those events and continue to participate in events on the right. Uh, My God, I mean, I don't know if people know, an actual active duty major in the United States Marine Corps from Quantico held the door and pushed a cop back. I mean, a, a serving field grade officer of the United States Marine Corps um, participated in, in essentially an insurrection, it's shocking to see so many people from our world, and we do see it the intelligence side. I, I know people from, from your world who I know from past lives who have now gone over to that very dark world. Um, I, I mean, I, it does give you pause when you see some of your peers who have sort of gotten lost in that world, and and, and does that make it harder for us to fight back against this fascist movement?
2: Great question, and I think all Americans see it. you know relatives or what have you have seen to more conservative in nature, you know, right. these words sort of become meaningless, yes, conservative exactly. or whatever, but, <laughs> yeah. but um, you know, so, and, and they're maybe more prone to, to go over over a li- the line. Um, it's, it's a real problem. Uh, you know, people should have a sense of, of what's appropriate and what's not appropriate, especially if you have been given the great, great, right and privilege to to work for your country. Yeah. If you want to engage in political activity, that's fine, but you shouldn't do it from inside our our agencies, and you should have enough common-sense, civic-wide knowledge of history and knowledge of our specialness as a country. That you, you should protect the country and understand the dangers of some of this kind of activity. Right. But yeah, I don't have a great answer. None of, if we did, we'd yeah. maybe be in <laughs> a better place.
5: We wouldn't be here, and it doesn't make people feel better. I'm sorry, folks, if you're listening to the show and you expect it to feel better. <laughs> uh, you're fucked. I'm still sorry. <laughs> you know, it's not great. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I said something a lot during that those events, and if you look at, I, I used two people as an example, Brian Sicknick died and Ashley Babbitt, who died, and both of them were Air Force veterans. Right. And they're on different sides of that divide that day of the battle lines. And I say often to people who are not from our world, both of them thought that they were supporting their oath to the Constitution that day. And, And that's, I think, how insidious the propaganda, if you will, and the talking points of the right, especially, I'm sorry, the authoritarian movement have become that they've twisted, Like you said something earlier, like, well, conservative, we want conservative people. Yeah, <laughs> you know, conservative men, they don't do crazy shit, right? Now it's something else. Um, the the right, especially in this moment, has really twisted our values, but you swore an oath to, you know, uh, open uphold, open, defend the Constitution, all enemies, foreign, domestic. They both thought they were fighting enemies, uh, uh, domestic enemies that day, um, and neither thought they were the bad guy, which is a shocking, shocking twist of the, the thing you and I served, because um, we both served a similar oath, you know, for our adult lives. I did twenty-two. You did twenty-eight. Um, at the same time, we see. I, I mean, for me, I, I did a bit of a rant yesterday on the Myers Touch Network about Don Jr. comes out. Cokehead um, <laughs> comes out with a video, right? I think I sent it to you because I was like, "Dude, you gotta talk." You're you like, "No, I'm not talking." I was like, "No, you're talking about it, bro." <laughs> I got bad news. You're on my show now. Um, yeah, you know. Yeah. So, but what's shocking to me is we have the son of a former president. We've got Margie Taylor Green, the fucking nut job from Georgia, actually coming out and saying that Tessera is, is is a hero. That Jack is the good, you know. He he may have prevented World War Three, and, and Alexander Vinman, my friend Alexander, who's been on the show, and Rachel, by the way, dear friends of mine, have been on the show. We're all we're we're heroes for doing the exact same thing. Of course, you and I know they're totally different. It, does it. I mean, it, it Does it infuriate you to see leaders, politicians, and others essentially? fucking horny for <laughs> Vladimir Putin, basically. I mean, I mean, it's kind of shock you with somebody who served in Russia and seen the arc of what Vladimir Putin's become, to see someone of that stature and, and American leaders essentially supporting his efforts and supporting someone who's a traitor to the United States. I mean, how did that make you feel? And, and you know, are you pissed off? I mean, like, yeah, oh, I'm pissed off, obviously. All, you,
2: know? Um, you know, a lot of it sort of comes back to the, the sad and ugly fact that a lot of this is Trump, but Trump obviously was grabbing onto something that already existed out right. there. Right. He's a
5: master of that, right? That's
2: his thing, right? So you, and this, there's, there's a version of this on the, on the far left, too, that your political enemies, the people you disagree with in the United States, are, are your real enemies. And therefore, anything you do to, to damage them, to, to go against them, is righteous because they're the enemies. Right our real enemies are foreign enemies. They're not people inside our own country. I mean, Republicans and Democrats and everybody should be trying to make a strong, healthy, economically prosperous United States. We should be, uh, you know, Republicans who I disagree with on things should not be my enemies. My my enemies are the people who want to destroy this country. And Vladimir Putin, people are acting as if there's, he's some kind of, uh, yeah, I understand. He is an enemy of this country. He has worked his entire life to destroy the West, to destroy the United States. He hates the West. This notion that because he's been Donald Trump likes him and stuff that that makes him a good guy—he hates Donald Trump. He he supports Donald Trump because Donald Trump is the chaos candidate. He wants to weaken the United States. Therefore, he's, he he will do anything to to provoke and push information into our tribal nature so that we attack each other. And it doesn't just happen in the United States, it happens in in Europe and other Western countries. This is all part of a game that the Russians have been using forever of subversion and sabotage and disinformation and assassinating their enemies and all of these type of things. So for any American to think that that person is actually an ally of theirs is is completely beyond the pale. you know, Vladimir Putin is is committing a murderous, murderous war against people in Europe right now, and he's not, he's not your political ally. <laughs> and it's just, it's just, it's just awful to see that. And and it's one thing, you know, to say because Donald Trump says it's good, and the, and the Democrats are supporting Ukraine, I therefore should support the other side. That's not good civic, pro American behavior. And I see it on the, on the left. These, we talk about Green, Clinton, Greenwald, and all these other kind of guys that have gone in their own weird way to be pro-Putin or, yeah. or to be whatever, because they have spent so much time in their lives as critics of the United States. Yeah. They criticize or angry. They've been uh, uh, of things. And, and legitimate criticism is, is great. That should be what, what's going on. But they've, they've become so that almost instinctively anything the Americans do must be evil. Therefore, the other side must be right. And the Russians have been playing this game for decades and decades. Before, you know, before World War II and everything, they were using, you know, pro-communist people in the West who were sort of, who were against their own governments. They were supporting them, and those people were being, becoming pro-Soviet, while at the same time they were hiding, Soviets and Russians were hiding that they were just murdering, mass murdering their own people. But there was Americans and Westerners who were, were talking about, oh, this is the future, and these are these are great people because they and they're being lied to, and the Russians know how to do the disinformation lying game. Vladimir Putin knows that the right wing likes things, so he's spread this version of he's anti-immigrant, he's anti-gay, um, he's Christian. Christian yeah. He's you know he sent more Butina. Here's this suggests they're sort of pro-gun. Right. And I lived in Russia. They are not. <laughs> They are Orthodox Christian. They're against all other Christian sects. They are anti-immigrant. They hate. They are anti-gay. That's for sure. Um, but the the sense that they are compatible with American right-wing people is crazy. It's not a gun culture there. Um, you know they, and they hate Americans. So yeah. it's it's just it's just really really sad. Like yeah. we can disagree with each other politically without. Supporting our enemies
5: our enemies and, and you know you and I we have a history we have fighting authoritarian religious zealots overseas That was our lives. You lived overseas. I was in the military. I did I did four combat tours, you know And all of them in Iraq. I keep finding myself back in Iraq. It seems like and there was a great piece in the washington post today Called uh, for president biden the democratic leadership in washington do more to push back against this rising extremism I've written the same. I wrote a piece last week about truman In uh, yeah, the truman commission if you remember from your history of the of, of that we know we know Harry Truman really. I'm a Missourian, so I know him. But because of the Truman Committee, where he stood up and said, "Hey, look, we got to fight this war better." It's 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 not disloyal to say, you know, we're wasting billions of dollars. I think I think there was a calculation. He saved us $332 billion in today's dollars in what he mm-hmm. did with the, the the fighting government waste and abuse, and the, and so a lot of us are saying, "Well, I do support uh, passionately, Mr. Biden. I'm glad he got elected. We, you and I are part of a, a coalition of organizations that helped that." Do you think there's a there's do you think there's a danger from your experience working overseas against these despots, against these zealots, against Vladimir Putin directly as an agent of the CIA? Is there a danger here of not addressing this rising extremism? I mean, you've seen it yourself in those countries, I bet. And I won't get into your secret life, but but I'm sure you sat back and, and observed and reported on rising extremism in other countries. Do you do you take pause here in America, John? I mean, you're you're watching it yourself as a private citizen. As someone your experience should we be worried and 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 like many of us say shouldn't there be more being done to actually fight it it's not a culture war right you just name all the things that vladimir putin stands for those aren't culture war, those are his fucking things so how do you as a cia just say shit man we got to fight here how do you feel about that
2: wow yeah i mean i i spent a lot of time actually in the balkans in there you Yugoslavia, and there lived over there for a number of years Thought. in some ways it's it, it's really sad to see some of the similarities and so Know, what what eventually led to just a brutal, nasty, murderous civil war in in the former Yugoslavia, you we know, saw sort of despots like like uh, Slobodan Milosevic using television and and using you know, ethnic slurs against other people living in, in in his space against each other. So there it became a very strong rural-urban divide in that country. So I lived in Belgrade and in, in Yugoslavia, and people there were pretty. Traveled. they were pretty open they pretty they understood they they could criticize the regime, but people outside in the countryside were getting sort of a whole different message, and they were they were a majority of the people and so they were getting the pro government milosevic sort of anti croat anti bosnian anti american anti western view and and, and they, they actually you know stoked anger against their own citizens so they would fight each other and and we're seeing that here, you know, politicians for, for immediate political benefit are stoking the irrational fears of their supporters to attack other Americans. And it's, it's incredibly dangerous. And, and yes, of course, I support President Biden in the sense that he is a normal, pro American, thoughtful, serious person who lets our institutions work that he, you know, but is he up to the task? In terms of dealing with sort of the anti-democratic things that are happening now, I don't know. This is a serious, serious. Wait, well, he's he's you know, I want to say I want to pretend like he's you know totally together and doing things, but he is a old, much older person. He sort of lives through you know his experience is, is animating him, and this yeah. is a different time. I mean, and you can talk about the Putin and in, in Russia stuff. Previous administrations, democratic administrations, mishandled. And you know, support where did not push back, and we needed to push back. And in many ways, our, our policies over numerous administrations led to this place where we are today. Yeah. So I can be very critical of of the Obama and Biden administration how they dealt with Russia, even though thank God Biden's in office and not yeah. Trump. Yeah. Um, so there are you know legitimate issues, and as Americans, we should be asking a lot of our of our leaders to to deal with these things. It's a really complex and difficult world, and it's made worse by our our tribal politics at home. And, you know, there's no one person, there's no one politician that that has the capability to fix it all. Um, But So, so being critical of the administration for maybe not dealing with some of these things, you know, he grew up in the Senate, 40, 50 years, you know, he wants to get along with the other side so that they can make... Because essentially, governing is compromise, right? Yeah. So if both sides.
0: Hi, welcome back. Got mm. the Live Trump keeps losing in Fox Folds. Streamed three days ago.
4: This is a public company, Fox News, Fox Corp there are shareholders who could who could allege securities fraud and class action fraud uh, and go after management executives and boards of director and the board of directors of fox news and seek another huge sum of money in another delaware case what do you think about that
6: yeah but you kind of have proven my point or slash answered my question which is 787 million Really, doesn't make a big difference to them. This is part of their business model. So, if there's a class action suit, um, you know, with the with the shareholders, I think if this is the business model and they they made the calculus that they're going to make more money by promoting these lies on the air. You know, and that they can afford because, you know, one of the things that was alleged and that was basically shown with all the information that we got in the Dominion case was this was a, a calculus on their part, a business decision to say our our. This, we're going to lose if we if we don't say these things. We're going to lose our audience, and and so I think in some ways they will argue we had a fiduciary duty to our shareholders to do this way because we made more money by doing this, uh, and and paying this this settlement is the cl- is the cost of doing business, which I think is why this is so frustrating and why if it, if because the money isn't going to change their change their business model, as you said, one bit. That's why a retraction, not an apology, because an apology, you know, it's like when you tell a little kid, you know, go go tell so-and-so you were sorry, and they begr- begrudgingly say they're sorry because mommy told me so when they, everyone knows they don't mean it. Everyone would know Fox doesn't mean I'm sorry. You know, what even is that? That's like a sentimental nothing. You want them to retract this. You want them to come out and say, this not only was not true, we knew it wasn't true, but we said it anyway. That's what they should have had been forced to do and Uh-oh. say, And if I was the judge, I would have said, you want me to to take away this monitor and this sanction? Then I want an under oath statement from you on the record that says those things, because this is outrageous.
4: Yeah. Well, the judge would. Yeah, I get you. I I get the visceral reaction to that. I just don't think the judge has the power to do that. He has inherent authority, but I don't think that matches the discovery abuse that he observed. But for people that wanted that to happen, first of all, I want to I want to note or compliment you, you probably don't know this, I was doing it for the research for the hot take, but that statement you just made about it's our fiduciary duty to settle based on the facts as they are being outlined, it's almost identical to the press release that Fox put out When the coupon-cutting company, the coupon-creating company, settled for $500 million, they said almost exactly that. Based on some pretrial decisions of the court, it was obvious that we have a fiduciary duty to settle, kind of skipping over the whole bad behavior and bad conduct. While I don't think the judge would be able to do it, and certainly putting the plaintiff in the position of having to police Fox is a very difficult place to be, as you said, it's binary. they either win their case and get get a big check or they don't. There's not a lot of other things that a plaintiff can do in a civil case unless you're like the Department of justice forget the forget the fEC the, the i mean the FCC the federal communications commission they're they're feckless, they don't have a lot of power they're not able to take everyone's like take fox's license away it's very, very difficult. They can investigate, but it's very difficult to take licenses away. Department of Justice Civil Division could take a look and see if civil liberties have been violated by what's going on in the network. Maybe they're already doing that. Can you? I mean, you could you see what's going on with, you know, democratically appointed and elected prosecutors going after Trump. Could you imagine if Joe Biden's Justice Department went after Fox News and Fox? Good luck. But it would be within their ambit to do that. But, yeah, um, but there's know. just
6: one more thing that's really sure. frustrating that. Fox News, from now on, all they have to do, they can continue lie, 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 lie. Just don't say it about a person or an entity, because that's what makes it def- defamation, right? If they just lied, the big lie, Donald Trump stole, you know, the election is stolen, mm-hmm. and they continue to peddle lies, then there's no one to sue for de- defamation because there's no one that they're that they're saying that yeah. about, right? I- and so, so the only way to get them to stop. Lies would be to do something like the FCC pulling, the, like or right. or don't call yourself news. You know there has to be standards. Like don't call yourself a news, a news corporation, you know, right? Like,
4: well, even opinion, even the opinion here was defamatory, but but I agree with I you. It, One, I would call
6: it entertainment, because you know, really that you. it's not even opinion. This is entertainment. Yeah. This is fiction.
4: Well, my my favorite filing so far. And we'll do more about it when we talk about and follow Smartmatic, is Smartmatic's complaint in the first two lines. And one of my favorite phrases ever used it's so simple but so beautiful in its simplicity here is the line you ready first line of their complaint the earth is round two plus two equals four and joe biden and kamala harris won the election that's how they started those immutable facts totally ignored by Fox News and then went on with the rest of their complaint. Yeah. I mean, re- really really beautifully done. But look, we're going to we're going to follow it. I know a lot of people are, you know, but uh, well, we want more, you know, everyone's picking up pitchforks, but we can't rely on a plaintiff who has to who has to get money into their client. There's a client here who got who got merciless, mercilessly bashed in their revenue stream hampered for life. That has to be compensated. And so that's what the money's for, as, as we like to say. And the rest of this stuff would just make us all feel better, but as you said, would not hurt the corporate culture. Until the Murdochs no longer own that company, it's run by independent professional managers, we're not going to see a change. Maybe when, when Rupert Murdoch is no longer on planet Earth, And Lachlan Murdoch is not as smart as Rupert, hopefully, and other people take the company over. But until then, they're just going to keep stroking 100 to $1 billion checks um, as a cost of doing business. But uh, we're going to talk about um, other people spending lots of money to uh, avoid the inevitable in Donald Trump and E. Jean Carroll civil rape case now six days away. It's on. It's happening. No more delays, no emergency applications, no Supreme Court rulings. He is being tried. Whether he shows up or not is another matter, but Karen and I will talk about that after a word from our sponsor. Now let's take a quick break to talk about our next sponsor, neurohacker, Qualia Mind. One's willpower and productivity can in turn transform your life habits for the better, from workouts to job performance to life goals. Throughout the course of a workday, we here at Legal AF are tasked with a ton of different assignments to ensure we keep you informed. That's why we're so proud to partner with neurohacker Qualia Mind. Our sponsor, Neurohacker, combines 28 of the most research-backed nootropic ingredients on earth into the ultimate brain fuel formula, QualiaMind. And it's been changing people's lives for years now. For help with my daily mental performance and help supporting my long-term brain health, I think QualiaMind is indispensable. It's so cool to take a product where you don't have to wonder if it's working because I noticed a difference in just days to my focus, my mood, my memory, and my willpower to get things done. The formula is non-GMO, vegan, gluten-free, and the ingredients are meant to complement one another, factoring in each ingredient's effect on supporting mental clarity. It's also backed by a 100-day money-back guarantee. So you have almost three months to try QualiaMind at no financial risk and decide for yourself. See what the best brain fuel formula on earth can do for your mindset. Go to neurohacker.com slash legal AF for $100 off. That's only $59 a bottle. And as a listener of Legal AF, use code legal AF at checkout for an extra 15% off your first purchase. That's neurohacker.com slash legal AF to try QualiaMind with code legal AF to experience life-changing mental performance. And <laughs> we're back. Let's talk about E. Jean Carroll. Um, I, I feel like I gotta do a little bit more than shorthand because sometimes we have, hopefully we have, new listeners and followers to Legal AF. So E. Jean Carroll, former editor of a gossip column for Elle magazine, 1995 or 1996, she alleges that she was uh, raped sexually assaulted by Donald Trump in a dressing room of a department store that sits to, almost directly across the street from Trump Tower, where, where Trump lives. And uh, she sued as soon as she could. Statute of limitations had run on her criminal case, but she sued as soon as uh, New York passed the Adult Survivors uh, Act, allowing uh, a victims, uh, adult uh, victims of sexual abuse to sue regardless of when it happened in time, as long as they did so within one year. And E. Jean Carroll was case number one uh, uh, that that got filed as soon as it could in November of 2022 by her law firm uh, and her lawyer, Roberta Kaplan. She also sued for defamation. We have defamation in two ways. One of them is when he was president, Donald Trump denied knowing her, saying she's not his type. Uh, it's a hoax. She's trying to shake me down for money. That was his president. And then he did it again in social media after he was president. So an issue developed about whether he was immune, he had immunity as president under a doctrine called the Westfall immunity while, while he was president. But fortunately, he did it again after he was president. And so the trial judge, Judge Lewis Kaplan, in federal court in New York said, you know what, let's go forward with the case that we can try right now, which is the civil rape case of, of e. Jean Carroll versus Donald Trump and the defamation that happened after he was president. And the issues about whether he can or cannot be sued while he was president, we'll leave that for another day and another trial. But let's get going on April 25. We've got two attempts in the last week and a half of the Trump team, which is a tell, like a poker tell, saying they're not ready. (laughs) They're not ready for trial. They've asked for two 30-day extensions. The first one, Karen, they based it on... There's so much media frenzy, dot, uh, dot, dot, created by their own client, um, since the arraignment, at, uh, he can't get a fair trial. We did a 30-day cooling-off period. New Yorkers who are sitting in the, the 12, 12 jurors who are selected will never be able to separate the arraignment on hush money uh, charges involving a consensual affair with Stormy Daniels to a rape case of... E. Jean Carroll that happened at another time and place. So let's wait 30 days. Things will be a lot better in 30 days, Your Honor. And then they filed another one when that failed. We'll talk about the failure of that. They filed another one that said, aha, E. Jean Carroll, E. Jean Carroll's lawyers have part of the costs related to the suit being paid by Reed Hoffman of LinkedIn. And he's a known Democrat and he supports de- democratic causes. So aha, she lied. She didn't say that he, that Reed Hoffman was supporting her case in any way, shape, or form. And we need 30 days or six months to get to the bottom of that issue. The judge said, no, we're not doing that. Um, You can can do a short deposition of Ms. Ms., uh, Carol for about an hour. You can ask her about the funding if she knew anything about it. You can do what you want to do without a trial. But we're going to trial on April 25. Karen, you've had an opportunity now to read Judge Kaplan's order. It's only 11 pages, but I think it covered a lot of ground. Uh, denying the motion for cooling off period that Joe Tacopina had filed, uh, what do you think? What do you think about the judge's uh, decision making and whether it fire it backfired on the defense?
6: Well, clearly, uh, it clearly it did. I mean, it, it's it's absurd for uh, for the court to ask the court for this cooling off period saying, oh, I can't get a fair trial because there's been too much media frenzy around here. I mean, the reason there's so much media frenzy around the criminal case is because of Donald Trump, right? I mean, we saw when Donald Trump came for Letitia James' uh, deposition recently, last week, we saw that he knows how to come in and out of Manhattan quietly if he wants to. It doesn't have to be this big dramatic uh, event the way he made his his arraignment, his Supreme Court arraignment to be. So he's the one who created this media frenzy. He is the one who created uh, the atmosphere that he is now complaining of. He can't benefit from that. In addition, I think it, the other issue I think that everybody has to think about, and if I was the judge I'd be thinking about is, Things are only going to get worse for him, not better, if we wait another 30 days. I mean, it is widely been reported that you have Fonnie Willis, who is on the verge of indicting him. You've got Jack Smith, who has at least three different criminal investigations. Any one of them can ripen to the point of a prosecution. So the the only time he's going to have uh, as little attention as possible is going to be uh, now, in this particular situation, and starting April 25th. So, anyway, he—he—he. He, he, this is what he's trying to do. He's—he's uh, he's trying to do anything he can to—to to delay or 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 get away from uh, having to face the music here. Um, but honestly, I think it, you and I have slightly different views on this case in terms of whether he his chance of success or not. Um, you, I think you think that this is, um, you know, that that he has, that this is a stronger case for him than I do. Um, I think this is a risky case. So, and and I worry a little bit about this case because, I think that I I think that he I think this is a, a he said she said, and I think that there are not there, there's a whole issue in this case about the DNA, and and the lack thereof. And I worry that that's going to be a problem for the jurors in this case. And Well, they're not going to be able to
4: mention the DNA at trial.
6: But that's the point. That's the point. So you can't mention it, but then they're all going to be saying, well, where is it? I don't understand. Everyone who's read about this case knows she saved the dress. Everybody watches CSI, Law and Order, and every other show and knows
4: Oh, you that think the jurors know about the dress?
6: Everybody knows about the
4: dress. Everybody in our business. No,
6: I think everybody knows about the dress. Everybody.
4: If you pulled um, somebody on the street in New York, you said to them, hey, do you know if she kept they're anything? Gonna,
6: they're going to enter the dress into evidence. 100%. Who is? Who is? The the plaintiffs. How uh, are they going to? Why wouldn't they? You don't they think don't they're
4: the going to. No, because they can't use the DNA. So why would they bring in the dress?
6: Because she'll say this is what I was wearing when it happened.
4: I think it I, has, mean, I, I think that has less impact if there's no DNA.
6: I don't know. Not if she says I saved it all this time because I was psychologically. so psychologically.
4: Yeah, like
6: I don't know. I'd be shocked if they don't enter it in. Uh, again. If, yeah. if this was a criminal case, not only would you enter the dress into evidence, you would put on an you, you would right. actually put on an expert as to yeah. why there is no DNA, or you would never leave that hanging. I know you say, well, it's a different standard. No, no. Or, I'm
4: saying as a civil lawyer, I would now knowing the rulings. If I'm Robbie Kaplan. I don't bring that dress or that concept anywhere into the courtroom. Now that the DNA has been resolved one way or the other where no, I can't mention it because I, was, I don't, no, no, I'm I proud. don't.
6: You saved the dress, right? Where is yeah, it? But
4: I, I'm not sure. Well, we'll have to see if Kaplan would allow that. This is the little insider stuff. I'm not sure I the, the judge ruled. There's not going to be any mention of the DNA one way or the other. If If they go there, if the defense goes there and brings up the dress, and, and tiptoes up to, but not at, the DNA, okay, then I think we have a whole different cross-examination or rehabilitation of of Jean Carroll. And by the way, I'm not sure it's he said, she said, because I'm not sure he is showing up.
6: So talk about that. Tell people, like, about <laughs> the different, because in a criminal trial, you don't have that option. You have to right.
4: show up. So well, let me, let me, before we get to the trial, let me just read a couple of things from, I think they're interesting, from Lewis Kaplan's decision, they're not long. Uh, from the order that he just ruled, um, in which he really takes the defense and Donald Trump to task. He says in his order, um, there is no justification for adjournment. This case is entirely unrelated to the state prosecution. The suggestion that the recent media coverage of the New York indictment, coverage significantly, though certainly not entirely, invited or provoked by Mr. Trump's own actions, what precludes selection of a fair and impartial jury is pure speculation so too is his suggestion Trump's suggestion that a month's delay of this trial would cool off anything even if cooling off were necessary and, um, and then when he drops the footnotes, footnote he says even events happen during postponements sometimes they can make matters worse and then he goes on to recite following facts Mr. Trump faces a number of criminal and civil investigations and litigation, including one, the United States Department of Justice Special Counsel's investigation of matters relating to the possible mishandling of classified documents, as well as matters relating to the 2020 presidential elections and the events of January 6th. Two, a criminal investigation by the District Attorney of Fulton County, Georgia. And three, the New York Attorney General's civil lawsuit against Mr. Trump, his family, the Trump Organization, for alleged financial wrongdoings. Um, Developments, this is to your point, Karen, this is the judge, in at least one of these matters, as well as actions and statements by Mr. Trump in relation to any, may well give rise to intense publicity that, in some respects, Mr. Trump might claim to be prejudicial in this case. Mr. Trump's suggestion that a one-month trial postponement in this case would ensure the absence of any such developments in the period immediately preceding jury selection is not realistic. He also went on to say, we're not looking for a jury who doesn't know who Donald Trump is or doesn't know about these issues, maybe even the black coat dress. We're looking for a jury who could be fair and impartial You know, and so even a person who says, I'm MAGA and wears a red hat isn't automatically eliminated from the jury pool. Now, one of the one of the plaintiff's lawyers might use their their uh, challenges to get rid of that person. But if they're left at the end of the box, after all peremptory challenges have been exhausted, that's not for cause because you got a MAGA hat on. The judge will then do a searing inquiry during voir dire, during the jury selection process, the Q&A, the judge will lead. And, and do to find out despite the hat you're wearing, sir, despite the fact that you went to a, a rally and you love Donald Trump, can you be fair and impartial and apply the facts developed in this court house, courtroom to the law that I charge you with? Yes or no, sir? And he'll say yes or no. And if he can, take your seat number 12 in the jury box. That's and, what's going to happen. So and this, it, is, this it, is federal court, right? this is we're and, in federal court
6: and we're in the southern district and that yeah. means the jurors come from not only Manhattan, right? Mm-hmm. But Manhattan, the Bronx and Westchester County, correct?
4: Yeah, I've gotten a very very intelligent jury picked in the southern district. I had a jury in my own case where every member of the jury was was a graduate of college and half were postgraduate. Every member. Interesting. Yeah. So, um you, you may be right that this particular jury of sort of urbane, cosmopolitan people living in these locations may be more inclined to remember the black coat dress um, than, than I'm giving them credit for. I just think if she takes the stand, which she, of course, will, along with the two other women who claim that they were sexually assaulted by Donald Trump, the Access Hollywood tape, Trump being Trump and and Trump. We got reporting today that he's not even coming to the trial. So,
6: yeah, so explain that. I'm
4: not, even, did... I'm not even sure. Well, you don't have to. I mean, you. The, first of all, the judge said, I want to know the days that your client is going to be in the courtroom, and I want to know it by tomorrow, by Thursday. So and he, he said that two weeks ago. So by tomorrow, although there's some early reporting based on sources say that he's not coming because the, ju- because the judge says, I saw what happened when you went on your arraignment, and I want to make sure we have personnel and security personnel th- the days that you come so it's not a circus so let me know when that is now in but a simple he case his mind. right no the judge is not letting him change his mind the judge is saying wow. i want to know by thursday the days if he's if he's appearing and the days that he's appearing like he's coming on the day that the case turns to defense or they might announce yeah we're doing the whole case in cross-examination and we're not putting it on any witnesses and donald trump's not taking a stand he doesn't have to take the stand he doesn't have to show up the jury can make their own conclusions by the empty chair that he doesn't give a crap about this case. I don't think that helps his case to not have him sitting there listening to it. Um, I think if I'm Robbie Kaplan. I dump on that empty chair all day long from opening. Where is he? He doesn't care about this case. This shows you, you know, uh, unless the judge enters an order that says you can't point to the empty chair, which I've never seen, uh, if because Trump's making his own decision, own free will, whether he wants to be there or not, civil case. But if he's not there, he doesn't testify. Then they got to rely on Joe Tacopina and um, Alina Haba to cross-examine their way to a win, which I think is not great for them. I, you know what? You only you, you know you got to get a unanimous vote. So maybe you're right too.
6: Who knows? I have a question. Sure. So can the def- uh, can Trump can can his lawyers put in his deposition? No. in other words, but Robbie, <laughs> so Robbie Kaplan could if she wanted right She could put in parts of the deposition, yeah, but they but, can't well correct? they
4: shouldn't be they shouldn't be able to because he's not technically a witness unavailable in the sense that he's outside a hundred miles of the jurisdiction. Um, or he's sick or ill. He's making his own choice not to be there. He therefore doesn't get to benefit from that choice by having just portions of his deposition read like a witness. Robbie can use it because she's on the offense and she right. can, you know, and she can use his words as admissions and all of that. So I think they're stuck. I think it would be the Robbie Kaplan show, the lawyer for e. Jean Carroll, being able to put on video after video after video of him in deposition, in which he, from the clips that we saw and the things that were filed. He didn't do well. So that's what the jury's gonna see. It's gonna come down to jury selection. I think if you get yeah. the right mix of women and men and you know college educated and all of that, I think Trump goes down. But I've certainly been shocked by other developments involving Donald Trump before.
6: I'm also so, uh, I'm changing my mind, by the way. Uh because although the DNA really just sticks in my craw, um, I think between the Access Hollywood, uh, between the Access Hollywood tape and the two other women, I think you're right. I think that pushes it over the edge. So. I think so, but you're right.
4: The dress is a problem. And believe me, if Robbie Kaplan had a dress with conclusive DNA on it with Donald Trump, because she did have it tested. We know the dress. It, the jury won't know this but we know this we know that, that that she had a dress that she kept the dress in her back closet for all these years because she claims because of the trauma of it and that it was tested for dna and it had other people's dna on it which you know doesn't come anybody that rides the subways in new york that doesn't surprise anybody uh at all about having somebody's d it's kind of gross but having somebody's dna on you uh, but it it wasn't conclusive and so they and they didn't pursue getting Donald Trump's DNA. And I'm sure that wasn't a mistake. That was on purpose because I don't think they would have liked the results. So you got, but you have the dress. And if she opens the door on the dress, that's a, you, you ask a very insightful question, which is, does that open the door to them saying you have the dress? Did you have it tested? See, I don't think they can say did you have it tested because the has the said no DNA reference by anybody. Mm-hmm. And I right. think that, that covers that. So they can say, oh, you saved the dress. Aha. <laughs> well, you can't do much with that after that, um, after that issue. But anyway, I think the Egypt. No, what you can
6: theory. do what you can do. In summation, is yeah. you didn't hear any evidence of any any scientific nothing to. No, crop. I don't
4: think you can. Based on calculus. you're not
6: doing DNA. You're saying there's no scientific uh. test or evidence. That corroborate yeah. what she's saying. I think
4: that's a mistrial, but it's it. But, it's, but it sounds good. It sounds. I don't, good. Gonna, I don't know. One day you and I are going to try a case together, and I, I love wait. that.
6: Let's and do maybe, it. And,
4: and, and yeah, I think and you'll a just lot have of fun. to keep
6: tell You'll have to keep telling me every morning.
4: <laughs> you are representing the people.
6: <laughs> yeah, well, well I've, I've made that mistake. No, but every morning you're going to have to tell me fifty-one percent.
4: It's just fifty-one percent. You know, it's a feather on one side of the scale or the other. It's all I mean, that's ponderance. what you. I can, I can, yeah, you spent 100. your whole life. You spent your yeah. whole life with beyond a reasonable doubt.
6: Yes, and this Let morning I was I was actually at the Manhattan DA's office, do, uh, te- you know, teaching trial advocacy, oh. which is something that alumni do, you know, to the incoming um, rookie class every year, and so I went back today, and and you know, yes. Yeah, and it was all about beyond a reasonable doubt and 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 what that is but i love preponderance of the evidence my god
3: it's like <laughs> it's one, one
6: of the many
4: reasons one of the many reasons i like doing the show with you for many many reasons is and it's also your innate humbleness i love that you're so i was down at the manhattan da's office teaching trial practice today I love that. Mm. I love that you, that you give back to the to our profession that way. Yeah. Hopefully you handed out Legal AF mugs to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> we do that. But uh, speaking of Legal AF mugs, it's time for another one of our sponsors. And here they are. This podcast is sponsored by Miracle Made Sheets. Whether you want to get more fit, be a better parent, or get more done at work, there is one thing that will help, and that's better sleep. With Miracle Made Sheets, You can tap into the power of self-cooling temperature regulation, which has been shown to improve deep sleep quality by over 20%. Using silver-infused fabrics originally inspired by NASA, Miracle-Made sheets are thermoregulating and designed to keep you at the perfect temperature all night long, so you get better sleep every night. These sheets are infused with silver that prevent up to 99.7% of bacterial growth, leaving them cleaner and fresher three times longer than other sheets no more gross odors miracle sheets are luxuriously comfortable without the high price tag of other luxury brands and feel as nice if not nicer than bed sheets used by some five-star hotels stop sleeping on bacteria clean sheets mean less bacteria to clog your pores and fewer breakouts and other skin problems go to try slash legal af to try miracle made sheets today and with mother's and father's day right around the corner this is the perfect way to give someone you love the gift of better and more luxurious sleep. Save over forty percent, and be sure to use our promo code LegalAF at checkout to save even more and get three free towels. Miracle is so confident in their product they backed it with a thirty-day money-back guarantee. So if you aren't one hundred percent satisfied, you'll get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made. Go to TryMiracle.com/LegalAF. And use the code LEGALAF to claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40% off. Again, that's TryMiracle.com slash LEGALAF to treat yourself. Thanks again to Miracle Maid for sponsoring this episode. All right, and we're back. Um, one uh, new bit, bit of information we picked up in real time. It looks like Donald Trump and his lawyers are worried about what the empty chair would look like in front of a jury and the ability of Robbie Kaplan to use that to their disadvantage, constantly pointing to it and saying, see, he doesn't care about you, he doesn't care about this case, he's flouting the rules again, and they're worried about that. So they have now filed something today and telling the court that Donald Trump would like to be there every day. Um, it looks like he's certainly going to testify at some point, so it's not just going to be, it's going to be what you said, Karen, he said, she said, because the he is going to show up, um, and, these, and the days he's not there, uh, the Trump defense team wants the judge to give the, give the jury an instruction not to hold it against Donald Trump if he doesn't come because of how logistically difficult it is to show up, even though, Karen, you demonstrated that when he had to show up for the deposition last week, he figured out a way to slip in and out of Trump Tower little fanfare, but I guess if we know he's going every day or nearly every day down to the court at the federal courthouse on Pearl Street down in Manhattan, then you know there's going to be the circus that's down there and you know free Donald Trump and all this other stuff, so he's not wrong about that um, i the judge will give an instruction to the jury. it's just not going to be the one that Joe Tecopino wrote, which is uh, he wants the judge to instruct the jury in effect that because Donald Trump is a former president. He's very, very busy, and he, and he creates a lot of security risks. Uh, he's not coming every day. The judge not going to do that. There's a standard instruction that the judge has in his model jury instructions for witnesses not being there and how to the jury shouldn't interpret anything about that on days when they're not there. He'll, he'll give that plain vanilla jury instruction. But it looks like we got the update, which is Donald Trump is going to be there on some days, likely the days that he has to testify. If I'm him, I'm definitely there day one when the jury is selected and opening statements are done. And uh, I may or may not be there the day that E. Jean Carroll testifies. And what about I'm, the other women? And I'm, I'm definitely not there for that. And I'm, I'm just saying, if you're trying to minimize being there, you're there on day one, jury selection, so you care about the case, opening statements. You're there for E. Jean Carroll, probably. You're there for your own testimony. That's about it. Everybody else, you sort of stay away. If, if you're Donald Trump. Okay, so let's move on to another huge case involving Donald Trump this time of prosecution and let's go down to Georgia and get it we'll do an update on Fulton County District Attorney Fawny Willis Fawny Willis let me frame this one I'll turn it over to you as a prosecutor former prosecutor Karen Fawny Willis um, people joked around and have taken issue with her a couple of months ago saying to the judge uh, the judge um, McBurney, who supervises her, jur- her her jurisdiction and her grand juries, that that the indictment decision by her was imminent. The decision to, was imminent. Multiple indictments were imminent. And it's been a couple of months, and everybody's been getting a good guffaw about it. Like, where is it? What does imminent mean? Why isn't it now? Because they they don't understand. There's a misalignment between the evidence that she was able to develop with the special purpose grand jury and her ultimate charging document or decision about a more more expansive RICO conspiracy. uh, The aspects of that, the evidence that supports that. And, you know, she she doesn't rubber stamp everything the special purpose grand jury told her to do. She's got to be comfortable in her own way that she's got the goods and the and the evidence to support not just getting an indictment, but winning a conviction against Donald Trump. And so that's what she's been doing the last couple of months. And she's only had a couple of windows of opportunity to make her decision to seek the indictment from a regular grand jury. They don't meet every month. They meet every other month. So she had a March grand jury and she didn't present at the March grand jury. We know that now. And now the next one is May. So the next regular grand jury that she can march over across the street from her offices in Atlanta to the to the regular grand jury to present her case with her team is in May. And so that, hopefully she's ready in May. In the meantime, she's getting ready. And her first new appearance in court in, by way of a filing uh, was just yesterday. And that was a, another motion to disqualify uh, uh, a lawyer, a, interestingly enough, a lawyer that used to work in the Fulton County DA's office as a special assistant district attorney about seven or eight years ago, and um, Kim DeBrow, And Kim DeBrow has the honor of representing 10 of the 16 fake electors, including the treasurer, an assistant treasurer of the Georgia Republican Party, a state senator, a Republican lawyer. Um, She represents all of them in one big multi-party representation. And some people might be saying, how can a lawyer do that ethically? Well, there are ethics rules that govern when you can represent multiple parties, and it comes down to this. If your parties, your clients' interests are aligned, they're aligned, and you can probably represent them all. If they get out of alignment and they start pointing fingers at each other and saying, oh, no, I didn't commit the crime, he committed the crime, then you probably can't represent them all or any of them. And so when Kim DeBrow and her co-counsel, Holly Pearson, in 2022 was representing 11 of them, the Judge McBurney said it was an ethical dilemma, um, an ethical mess basically. And he said, I'm gonna allow it for now, but you can't all represent the uh, chairman of the Republican party, David Schaefer and the 10. You can either do Schaefer or you can do the 10, but you can't do both because Schaefer's got more criminal liability and culpability here. And they, they cut Schaefer loose to go with another lawyer And they kept the 10. Another interesting fact I found while developing a hot take on this issue is that both Holly Pearson and Kim DeBrow are paid, their legal fees are paid by the Georgia Republican Party, who have listed it on their disclosures that they're paying for this representation of all these people. Okay, so now what we didn't know until the filing yesterday is that the DA's office is trying to get some of the fake electors to flip and cooperate. Now, in 2022, Judge McBurney allowed the prosecutor to make an immunity offer to all 10, basically saying, here you go, blanket immunity, immunity on the table, whoever wants it, come and get it. We won't prosecute you, you just need to cooperate. And he required that that uh, Kim DeBrow and Holly Pearson report back to him as to whether it, that they've been told, the clients have been told, and if they, any of them were willing to take it. And the report from Holly Pearson in 2022 was, nope, none of them want it, which is amazing, right? I want to hear your prosecutor view. None of the 10 wanted to take the immunity deal. Okay, that's what, that's what the report to the judge. Now we fast forward to like two days ago when they were being interviewed, two of them, fake electors, by the office, by Fonnie Willis' investigation team. And they learned two things. One, according to the two, they had never been told about the immunity deal at all which I'm sure eyes were popping out of their head during that meeting. I want to hear it from your perspective. They were like, nope, we never heard about that. Really? Because your lawyer had told the judge that you had heard about it and you turned it down. That's one major problem for the lawyers of Pearson and DeBrow. The second one is they started to point the fingers at others in Kim DeBrow's uh, multi-party representation. I didn't do it. He did it. He's more culpable than me, and things like that. And Kim DeBrow is sitting next to them in the interview because she still represents them. So they came in for a offer, for a a, a plea, a plea presentation, if you will. And so immediately, like like a day later, um, the prosecutor's office filed a motion to disqualify Kim DeBrow again, get her out of the case because of the shooting match that's developed between the ten and to raise what the judge's attention, although they did it sort of subtly, that we also have a problem because they didn't know about the immunity deal. And isn't that a problem, Your Honor? And sort of moved on. That's sitting there. So I want to get it from your perspective. What do you think it means that two out of the 10 are now pointing fingers? And what do you think it means that they didn't know about the immunity offer? What does that mean for the lawyer who told the judge otherwise?
6: Yeah. Well, look. One of the one of the lawyers says she has documents to prove that she told them, um, and maybe she has something that she had them sign, but didn't explain it. Who knows? All I know is this is going to be very interesting, uh, a very very interesting development here, because the lawyer has an obligation to discuss these things with their client if if this was in fact the case, and you can't mislead the court. So so I think people potentially could get in a little bit of trouble here but this is you know it's very dicey to start to interfere with a person's representation you know people have a right to be represented by who they want to be represented and and as a prosecutor it's tricky to go in and try and say disqualify a lawyer from a case and so I think I'm I think I think it's going to be a very interesting uh to see how how this goes because really what what Fonnie Willis is trying to do I think is is what what Prosecutors do in gang cases or mafia cases, where you're trying to develop cooperators, but the, the 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 defendants who or witnesses are being represented by the by the lawyers paid for by the. You know head person and you know therefore they can't cooperate because that'll go back to the head person and and they'll get in a lot of trouble or their life could even be in danger and this has that feeling you know and and as prosecutors what we would do is you, you you represent you you would would appoint shadow counsel which is literally a counsel that would um address these issues with the client and not let the other lawyer know or so that the the crime boss doesn't doesn't get to know or and that's really what we have here you know you've got this uh situation where um not only does it look like that these lawyers are representing the interests of their, what's in the best interests of their clients, because frankly, an immunity deal, it just doesn't get better than that. They certainly have to at least express that to the client and let the client decide. But really what they're doing here is they're really working on behalf of the Republican Party slash Donald Trump. And so it's interesting. I see this, you know, Fonnie Willis has a lot of experience bringing RICO cases, which are these big organized crime cases that have a structure like a boss, you know, a crime boss and lieutenants, et cetera. I think it's possible that that's coming down the pike because uh, that's what this is starting to look like. And, and these efforts by the lawyers uh, not doing what's in the best interest of their clients, not informing them of things like this, and by letting the purse strings be pulled by the crime boss, frankly, it's looking and sounding and smelling a lot like a RICO conspiracy case to me. That, that's, that's what I see when I see this.
4: Yeah, I think I agree with you. She's she's, um, brought more civil RICO cases have been brought under her two year tenure than like 10 years prior to that collectively in that office. She is a um, self-professed expert in the area. She's got the chops to prove it. She's got the convictions to prove it. And she's even hired a um, full-time civil RICO expert lawyer to be with her. As a special prosecutor as a prosecutor in her office so um you know there's the old joke that to a hammer everything is a nail and to somebody that likes civil rico they can find civil rico and it ties as you've said in the past podcast it, it helps the prosecutor tie together all of these disparate acts and actors in a conspiracy Um, tying together the fake electors with the phone call that Trump and Meadows made to find the 11,785 votes to the things that Giuliani was doing at the State House to try to hold fake legislative hearings um, and phony kangaroo courts. You can tie all that together and present one big case if you do it under the guise and rubric of conspiracy and civil rico conspiracy. So I agree with you, I'd be shocked if if she doesn't indict, I'd be shocked if the indictment isn't for civil rico, and I think that's also the reason it's taken her just a minute to get this case together for the regular grand jury, everyone's like, you know, oh, it's the it's the instant prosecution. Just add water. Just take the special purpose grand jury report, add water to it. Boom! It's an indicting document. Take it in. Let's go. That's not how that works. And we, if any, if you've learned anything on legal AF, it is that patience is a virtue. That cases take a while and a minute to develop. Especially, ben,
6: especially Rico and conspiracy a Rico
4: case. Absolutely, is, is super a complicated, complicated. Yeah. Which is why also, no, no, you're, I don't, you're, we're not interrupting each other, we're having a chat. The uh, Ben Masalis put it, right, which is, if you if you went fast on all these cases, like, hurry up, Jack Smith, hurry up, Bonnie Wills, then you don't get things like every person in Trump's inner sanctum being stripped bare of any privilege, attorney, client, or executive, or otherwise, and having been forced to testify at the grand jury. If you ended the case a year ago, you brought the case a year ago, you don't get that. If you don't wait till now you don't get these fake electors to start flipping on each other that happens with time that happens with pressure that happens with developments and new facts and investigative um things that are developed by the fbi and by the investigative agencies that's what happens and that's why it takes long. that's why of the three or so grand juries that jack smith has um going mar-a-lago uh jan 6th everything related to the 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 interference with the peaceful transfer of power, and this fundraising grift on the back of a lie of Joe Biden not being properly elected and then used to uh, spend money on uh, lawyers uh, for witnesses, that one may be in the lead because the complicated one is the Gen 6 conspiracy. And so, you know, we'll see all of that. So uh, I think it's indictment season. I think it's in May for Fonnie Willis. She doesn't have multiple grand jury. She's got one grand jury. She's got one set of facts. She's got one conspiracy theory. And I think she's probably the next. Unless, unless Mar-a-Lago is ready, and it's about ready, because everything, all the witnesses have gone in that case. And and with uh, Evan Corcoran, the lawyer for Donald Trump, um, in Mar, all things Mar-a-Lago having recused himself, speaking of disqualification and recusals, saying, I can't also represent him because I'm a witness. It, the, their prosecution for Mar-a-Lago could be right around the corner. What do you think, Karen?
6: Yeah. Um, speaking of Jack Smith, um, can I give two fun facts?
4: Yeah, of course. So,
6: um, totally off topic, but um, so when you when you work at the Manhattan DA's office, it's all about what class. Everyone's like, "What class are you? Like, what year did you start?" Because you start as an incoming class after law school. So everybody starts right after Labor Day, and whatever class you're in, you sort of you move up together, right? It's, it's, a, it's kind of a big deal. So like I'm class of 92 and I'm still friends with people from the class of 92. My husband was class of 1990, it's like a big thing, right? Well, Jack Smith was the class of 1994 in the same small bureau that I was in, right? So he came to, I was two years senior to him and and we worked together. But do you know who else, I don't know if this, if you guys addressed this or if we addressed this on Legal AF, but you know who else was the class of 1994? Juan Mershon.
4: Oh yes, there uh, we have it. Uh, so Jack
6: Jack Smith and Judge Juan Mershon. So different cases, right? Juan Mershon is is doing the the Alvin Bragg. He's the he's the one who, who who is the judge on the Trump org case with the 17 count uh conviction and he's the one who arraigned and is currently the judge on this new uh, the, the indictment that Alvin Bragg just brought in the Stormy Daniels case and obviously Jack Smith is special counsel but they were both the class of 1994 at the Manhattan DA's office one other fun fact of Jack Smith and this is only because I was talking to uh, somebody who was like can you what cases did he work on what else did he do and I couldn't remember I couldn't remember but then it dawned on me there was a case in 1997 that a trial that I was supposed to do. And uh, it was a pretty serious case. It was this very violent guy who had convictions in eight different states, and he carjacked somebody and then went on a high-speed chase all throughout Manhattan, hitting different people and cars and accidents. And he ends up in a head-on collision with a police car, injuring the two police officers. officers inside. And then when he goes to uh, do arrest processing and be arraigned, he attacks the court officer and ends up severing, like breaking the guy's hand and nerves, et cetera. Really bad, dangerous guy. And the guy started threatening everybody. And he started threatening the court. He started threatening the lawyers. And he started threatening me. And at the time, I was pregnant with twins. And I didn't think I could it was safe, you know, it was a high risk. I didn't think I could try a case, especially with someone as dangerous as this. And so guess who said, I'll do it for you, Karen, because he's a nice guy and just the best person, Jack Smith, took that case and he picked up the file and he tried the case. Like he's just a good guy who just could handle, he was only like a a third year, you know, which is not very senior. Anyway. You mean he's
4: not an animal lunatic
6: He's a nice person who like <laughs> felt sorry for me because I was totally stressed out with this really yeah. violent, terrible guy. And here I am, you know, giant with twins. Yeah. And I'm like, I just can't handle this stress with, you know, this guy threatening me. And he's already attacked people, whatever. And Jack is just a good guy who said, I'll pick it up and do it for you. Yeah, who was
4: a good guy starting three years out of law school and has exactly. been a good guy his whole life. That's, exactly. You know,
6: that's, anyway, so uh, I just wanted to share that. Yeah, I like people. those I was just, are good. You know,
4: that, that's why people tune in for that kind of anecdote. Let's turn to your office, your old office, speaking talk of. Talk about and speaking of and talk about a case that's got going on right now. In fact, we got some updated reporting we'll do right when we get to that moment in our segment. Um I'm gonna do one minute, turn it all over to you. Alvin Bragg prosecutes Donald Trump, gets 34 count indictment against him related to Stormy Daniels, business record fraud, election election connection, if you will, for a felony. And um that case is in front of Judge Mershon, who we just got through talking about. Um, in the meantime, the MAGA right wing Republicans, Jim Jordan, who head the who heads the House Judiciary Committee, because they've got nothing better to do, because they don't have the numbers to pass any legislation. So they just got to run around doing investigations and, and trumped up um, trumped up committees all day long as a payback for Jan 6, decide that they're, because Donald Trump told them to, decided that they're going to go after a local prosecutor prosecuting local crime about events that happened before somebody was even president. And that is Donald Trump for something that happened before he was president, uh, led by the duly elected um, uh, prosecutor for Manhattan, Alvin Bragg, elected by the people of the state of New York. Here it implicates, uh, so he decides he's going to drag Alvin, um, by letter at least, not by subpoena, to come to Washington to testify about the prosecution of the former president about events before he was even president and why that's appropriate. And he's also bringing in Mark Pomerantz, now I guess retired or retired to private practice, who who was a special prosecutor for a two-year period of time, starting with Cy Vance and ending on the 90th day of Alvin Bragg's tenure when he took over from Cy Vance, who was investigating everything. Trump didn't like that Alvin in his 90th day wasn't ready for the indicting decision, charging decision, and left the office noisily uh, with a letter and then a memoir in which he talked about insider information about the prosecutions that he worked on, including the Stormy Daniels one, made some untoward out-of-school comments about Alvin Bragg and Alvin and Bragg's about comments quit.
6: And about
4: career prosecutors in the office. Totally. Right, exactly. And Alvin, we'll get to that. You'll get to that. And Alvin Bragg's comments about witnesses that are involved, like Michael Cohen, just totally inappropriate things. You do that in retirement after the case is over as a memoir, not in real time as the case is still being investigated or prosecuted. But, aha, Jim Jordan said, that's a great person for me, a disgruntled former prosecutor who worked on the case that's currently being prosecuted. Let's bring him to Washington and sit him in front of a whole Failings of, of microphones, and I'll ask him a lot of questions under oath. And Alvin Bragg said, I don't think I'm going to do that. I don't think you're going to do that uh, because in order for Congress to have any power over anything, a committee of oversight or, or investigation, it has to be tied to a proper legislative purpose. That's what the U.S. Supreme Court says in a series of cases, including the Mazers case that you worked on, Karen, you'll talk about it, involving Donald Trump. Um, and without a proper legislative purpose, you have no subpoena power, and you have no proper hearing or at all. So that's that's where it begins, and that's where it ends. So Alvin moved for a motion, filed a case, and moved for a temporary restraining order, and then an injunction to stop the, and quash the subpoena against Mark Pomerantz, stop him from testifying for lack of proper proper legislative purpose, and because it violated state sovereignty, the sovereignty of a state in our federal system um, and of local prosecutors to be immune from attacks by the federal Congress when they don't like something because their former party leader, you know, uh, got himself into a criminal problem involving conduct before he was even president. So we had, a we, there's filings on that, including one of yours you'll talk about, and then it culminated in a hearing today in front of a judge, Vice Vice Goselle, Vice Gocelle, sorry, the federal judge in Southern District of New York, by the way, a Trump point D we'll talk about that in a minute pick it up from there Karen talk about Alvin Bragg firing back what do you think about it what do you think should happen and then we'll talk about what did happen at the hearing today
6: yeah so what what's been happening here is this attempt at interfering with a state court criminal prosecution and looking for an excuse or a reason to have oversight over something that they don't have oversight over so typically congress because of separation of powers does not have oversight over say the department of justice when it comes to active ongoing criminal prosecutions. And it's it's something that is fairly clear. And if Congress ever were to subpoena that someone from the Department of Justice to testify about an active ongoing case, they would decline and it would not, they would not have to Uh, testify there because there is a separation of powers and it would not be appropriate and there is no legislative purpose where you would talk about the individual facts of a particular case in in a pending or ongoing uh, investigation or prosecution but in state court where this is where the congress is trying to reach in and have oversight it's even doubly problematic because not only do you have a separation of powers interest issue like the legislative and the executive branch but you also have a federalism issue right it's 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 state versus federal and and that is extremely problematic for uh for congress because they are going into a place that they truly have no business being and so as a result they're looking for a an appropriate legislative purpose, some reason that they can stick their nose in the tent, right? And what they're saying is, and what they're trying to hang their hat on is that, well, well, you know, Alvin Bragg uh, said in a letter that, that they used federal funds, not for this case, not for the Stormy Daniels Hush Money case, but for a prior investigation into Donald Trump. And that was $5,000 back when Cy Vance was DA. He apparently used um, $5,000 of federal funding on a small portion of that case. Uh, And I would say small because investigations of that size can cost millions of dollars, right? Investigations aren't cheap. So $5,000 spent is, is not a lot Lot of money, and uh, but that they are saying that is uh, gives them a legislative purpose to uh, hold a hearing, and I myself have testified many times before city council uh, on on how we spent on programs that the DA's office. Created or spent money on, because we would have to justify how we spent our money on various programs, but certainly never on a particular case that is always carved out of what was appropriate for the legislative branch to question us about, and that has always been how how it's done because it is so clearly a violation of of the separation of powers and here in federalism now. Interestingly, you bring up, Popak, a case, uh, Trump versus Mazars, uh, which was a case that went to the Supreme Court twice. Uh, It had to do with. the tax returns, Trump's tax returns that Cy Vance's office tried to get and actually uh, did ultimately prevail. But there was a second case, a companion case, that Congress was also trying to get the tax returns in the, um, uh, of Trump's tax returns. And they said for a valid legislative purpose. And the Supreme Court in that case denied Congress's uh, request to see the tax returns. Cy Vance got them, kept them secret. They still remain secret. And four months later, he brought the the case against the Trump organization based on those tax returns leading to the 17 count indictment. Congress did not get the the, courts, the Supreme Court said, no, Congress, you don't get to have those tax returns because it's not a valid legislative purpose. And they, they created a four-part test on what Makes a valid legislative purpose or not, and uh, and and that's the law that um, Alvin Bragg is citing when he says that um, Jim Jordan here cannot uh, hold a hearing and call either Alvin Bragg or Mark Pomerantz to uh, testify about this pending case. And you referred to a brief that that I was involved in. Um, that we filed on behalf of uh, Alvin Bragg, we we filed what's called an amicus brief, right? Or, um, you know, it, it's a friend of the court is is the, it's a Latin phrase. And um, we are amici or amici. How do you, wh- which one do you believe? I think it's amici, you know, the friends of the court.
4: Oh, <laughs> definitely Italian to <it'd> be amici. <laughs> if, but I have a feeling, I don't know, I'll have to have the Latin people, because it's amicus yeah. curi, so maybe it's amici.
6: I know. Well, that, anyway, so I said a mechie. <laughs> they said a but whatever. So, and that's just what that means is you're not a party to the action, but you are somebody who feels like you would like to, and you ask permission of the court to to give your support and your legal analysis as to why you think one side or the other should prevail. And it was. Um, this was a this was a brief filed by it was a seventeen pages i think and it was something that was that was um filed by former members of congress former prosecutors and former government attorneys and scholars of course i'm one of the former prosecutors and you know what we said is you know we had an interest in ensuring the appropriate balance between uh, an efficient justice system and the need of legislatures to engage in lawful oversight and legislation and so that was and and the judge accepted our our brief and and really what we said was and I and I'll just read a small portion of it it says you know our federal system of government can from time to time create truly difficult questions about the balance of power between states and the federal government. This case is not one of those. Congress has no authority to interfere with an ongoing criminal prosecution, particularly one brought by a state prosecutor. That calculus does not change just because the defendant, whom a grand jury indicted, happens to be a former president of the United States. So, and so, you know, when we go on to discuss um, the law